typically jump in with, do you remember the first improv class you taught? Let's see. I mean, I, uh, yes, I do. Uh, I had been coaching in uh, Chicago for a while. I was coaching a team uh, at Improv Olympic and uh, probably a couple of teams at that point. And I was asked to teach level two at IO. So, and I remember it cause the, back in the day, the way you, you taught at IO, you probably still do it. I don't know, is you are told to shadow someone. So I shadowed Miles Stroth and was told basically just teach what he teaches. And then later the same thing happened. I, I shifted to level four at the time. This was Susan Messing's class and I was told, shadow Susan and then teach what she's doing, which was bonkers, bonkers. Good. But the idea of, of like watching Susan teach and then teaching her class is, is a bit, um, a bit of a challenge. Yeah. I think I learned a lot from it, but yeah, it's, it's impossible to emulate her. When you started doing it, was it something that you were like, Oh, I really enjoy this. Uh because some people, when they start doing it, they get the bug. Not don't they, not only do they get the improv bug, but they get the improv teaching bug also. Yeah. I mean, I was actively pursuing coaching and directing um, at the time, but I wasn't really thinking about teaching. I hadn't – it hadn't occurred to me yet to ask for it. So it was it was a very nice surprise that, that um, uh, Sharna asked me to teach. I, for a long time, I, I was when I was teaching at IO and then later at UCB, there was kind of this feeling like, if nothing else, I want to do the, this the rest of my life. Um, that feeling is somewhat uh, <laughs> tempered over the years, but certainly, you know, the first sort of 10 years of teaching was had that kind of passion to it, a feeling like, yes, this is the thing I was meant to do. Um, um, and I still love it, but it, but it's, it's a little different now. I think, I think it's tempered with other things I want to do as well. Do you think that's just a result of you growing as an artist or do you think that it's has to do with the teaching itself or the improv itself? I think in part, it's the, the challenge, like anything you're excited about something or I get excited about something when it's, uh, not just when it's new, but when it's in that growth period where I'm learning a lot uh, as I'm doing it. And I think as a teacher, uh, just like as a performer, uh, you the first few years that you do something, you learn the most uh, from that process. And it, um, you know, at a certain point, your 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 level of learning as a teacher starts to level out a little bit. So I think I get re-excited about teaching improv when um, I go off and I learn something new and try and figure out how to apply it to improv. Like a few years ago, I, I took some classes in physical theater and clowning, something I wouldn't have done in my 20s, um, and felt like, oh, I, I learned an awful lot about it uh, or from that process. And I wanted to see, like, how does that – how can I get that to apply to improv? And so that was a very fruitful time. Um, but you kind of need that input, I think. Uh, if if all you're doing, or, or mostly what you're doing, is teaching, and you're not learning new things that that can apply to it, I think it it can get stale. Do you do you have a current? Do you have? I'm, I'm sure you have one, but have you like said out loud like a current teaching philosophy? I think I have a couple sort of competing ones. Um, by necessity, almost, I think that I have re. Uh, embraced the game of the scene. You know, when I was in New York, of course, I was teaching game of the scene for the UCB. I was helping to re- develop that curriculum for them. And I was kind of like leading that, you know, for a while I was sort of leading the classes and the curriculum there. And, and so of course I was teaching that, but I was also sort of looked at it like I was kind of, um, I was uh, for tempering it as well. In other words, uh, I ended up teaching the advanced classes there. And so I ended up getting people after they had already learned the game. And now I was trying to kind of reconnect them, uh, with the, the more sort of essential things that make improv great. The, you know, that grounding their scene work, connecting with one another, um, doing the kinds of things that a good actor would do. Um, 
alongside playing games. And, um, now I'm in, uh, Chicago and there really isn't, I mean, a lot of people talk about games and, and I think there are some people probably teaching things that are very compatible with the idea of game, but it's not the same. There's not like this, um, you know, core large group of people who have already been taught the game and now need to learn how to love improv again. (laughs) It's more like there's a bunch of people who hear the word game bandied around a lot and don't, uh, uh, don't really know what it is. So, so yeah. So one of the things I'm doing a lot of game of the scene stuff here in Chicago. Um, but I think that there's other things that I've recently sort of embraced, other sort of ideas that are, uh, maybe get me more excited uh, when I can get a chance to teach them. And that's the biggest thing I think is learning how to force yourself to make surprising choices, such choices that you don't even understand why you're make why you are making them at the time, and then to make sense of them afterwards. Uh, you know, maybe that's just a new way to, you know, the idea of, you know, jump and, and, uh, uh, build the airplane on the way down or whatever that quote is, <laughs> you know, um, you know, jump before you know how you're going to land. But I think it, I think that's more, that's always for me that, that concept always been more of a, a philosophical thing of like, get, get out there on the stage and just make something happen before you, you know, trust that something great is going to happen with your scene partner, which of course is true. But, but what I'm talking about more is forcing weird shit out of your brain. Uh, I don't know if I can say that word, uh, weird stuff out of your brain before you know why you're saying it. So it might be, uh, like the stuff I've been doing at the, at the camps or when I'm, when I'm traveling tends to be this kind of stuff where getting people to tell a story or make up a colloquial saying or react to something, uh, have a strong emotional reaction to something without any idea why they're doing it. And then just listening to their subconscious, tell them the reason after it happens. And actually it's surprisingly fast. I mean, if you do something, your brain will make sense of it and come up with a cover story for you, uh, very shortly, uh, within, usually within a few seconds. Uh, that's what your brain does all the time, every day. You're constantly doing things, not knowing why you're doing them. And then your brain will give you a story to, to sort of placate you and say, well, this is why you ate that piece of chocolate cake, or this is why you, you, you yelled at your, your dog, or this is why you, um, you know, smiled at that person in the grocery store. You know, you, you can, uh, you think you know why you do it, but you, you really don't. It's just a cover story. And so the same, I'm trying to harness that in the improv of, of your, your brain's, uh, ability of sort of making up reasons for why you just did something uh, and challenging it by doing weird things. So when you, um, so with, with that, uh, when you go to like create exercises, um, that focus on that, um, how do you approach the creation of an exercise for something like that? I mean, there's a few different ways to do it. Oftentimes it's just the most straightforward thing of like thinking of, you know, these days the, it's, it's thinking of the most straightforward way to just go about it. It's like, um, I want someone to tell more stories in their scenes. So I come up with a prompt, either a, a prompt that they can tell themselves or that I can do from the outside and in the middle of us, get them to start a scene and in the middle of the scene, I just give them the prompt and say, do that thing now. Um, that, uh, and like tell a story now, uh, react emotionally now, um, and try to get people to, to work on that impulsive level where they're not pre-planning it. Um, I mean, it's, it's nice when you can come up with a, one of the things I think I learned from Susan was how fun it is to come up with goofy names for your exercises or compelling memorable names for your exercises and, and throw sort of weird twists into it to keep people excited and playful. Um, and also to, you know, Susan and Miles were such incredible contrasts as teachers because Miles was somebody who created exercises that nearly everyone failed at 
and Susan created exercises that everyone succeeded at. And that's not meant as a criticism of either one. I don't think, I don't think it's really right as a teacher to, to, you need to figure out how to keep people in the middle of that, but it's important to, you know, to, to make sure things are difficult sometimes and that it's hard to complete what you're asking, but it's also good to have some things that students succeed at just by putting their mind to it and trying. Um, you kind of need both. But yeah, I think a, a lot of the stuff I do right now is pretty straightforward. I, it is fun if you can think of sort of a strange uh, concept or a strange way to frame an exercise. It is fun when you can um, one way that, uh, something I learned from, uh, Craig Kakowski is how he, he likes to frame exercises by creating a, actually, uh, um, Susan has done this too, by sort of creating a fiction around the exercise. Uh, in other words, you, you come in, the, the exercise I, I always think of is the one where Craig will come into class and, and say, okay, everybody, this is like sometimes the first day of class. Okay, everybody, we're going to do scene. We're going to do the scenes you've been studying and, uh, the, the ones you have memorized for scene study class. And, uh, uh, you know, you've been, you've been rehearsing this for weeks and, uh, we'll just get up and then he makes up the name of a, of a scene from a play that doesn't exist and has them improvise that scene as if it's, they're presenting something from scene study class. And, uh, it's, it's interesting to get, try and get people into a different frame of mind. I I think an example of something I've tried to do, like a a subtler example of that, that I've done is, um, you know, there's, there's various exercises are called like doo-ops or something. And I've all, you know, I don't know, maybe the first few times I that was exposed to a doo-op, I kind of liked it. But, um, um, over time in Chicago in the nineties, uh, the idea of a musical doo-op got, more and more reductive and terrible. Um, and they used to do it at the, the IO jam and it was the worst. I hated it watching it so much because it was so, um, it was so it, by design, they were not trying to create an actual good song and it drove me nuts. And so what I did is I, I, create an exercise called trash can doo-wop and it's probably a dated exercise now because not enough people, not enough 25 year olds really know the movie Rocky. Um, but if you remember the movie Rocky, there's these scenes, uh, where there are, uh, he's walking down the streets of Philadelphia and there's a group of men standing around a trash can that's on fire, singing the most beautiful songs you could imagine, just like incredible harmonies they're making, you know? Um, obviously something that happens every day when you walk down the street in, in Philadelphia, I'm sure. Um, but to try and, uh, to, to build a song together, building up those layers and to imagine yourself, you're standing around, it's a brisk, uh, early winter, um, evening and, uh, you're standing around a trash can trying to keep warm and you're, you're singing this amazing song together. And, you know, you challenge people in that way, you frame it in that way. And, and oftentimes they do create something, uh, beautiful or, or, um, artistic and not just, you know, whatever garbage comes out of their, their, their gullet. Both for UCB and for IRC, you've created the curriculums for both of those, correct? Well, I, uh, I wrote down the first curriculum for the UCB before, before, you know, the early days of the UCB, the, basically each of the four of them taught a class and, and that was it. Like you taught, you you took Besser for a session, then you took Walsh, then you took Polar really in any order. I think when they first started, by the time I arrived, they had one other teacher and that was Armando. And he was like teaching all the level ones, I think. And then I started teaching level twos and then, something like that. I, or maybe I started teaching the level ones and Armando was teaching the level twos. Um, and we I was just basically teaching my own curriculum and making sure it fit with Armando. But eventually after a couple of years, yeah, uh, once I became the artistic director and then when I got shifted over to be in charge of the classes, I, I took control of the, I mean, I, I'm sure they asked me to do this. I didn't just take it. Uh, but I, I sort of, uh, I put, helped put together, uh, a curriculum 
uh, with a lot of input from the teachers. But yeah, I sort of organized the curriculum, the first version of curriculum. It was mainly, um, some of it was just sort of reorganizing when we did things. Like um, what I, I believe strongly that you needed to uh, learn some foundational uh, skills before you tackled game. So you need, or it was best to sort of learn some basic things about how to do an improv scene uh, before you really started thinking about game. And so the way we set up the curriculum was level one was, was um, sort of basic scene work kind of things with an eye towards game. And then level two was game of the scene. And then level three was, was Harold. Uh, and then, and then, and then we further refined it where we, we created a, a, a sort of second level of Harold. So you learn the Herald and then you could basically did another class just on Herald. Uh, but this was, it, it was more sort of like the kind of work you would do if you were being coached to do Herald and you would, you got to do performances of it, two or three performances over the eight weeks. Um, yeah, I mean, there was a lot of things about the UCB curriculum that I helped shape. The, I would say the current curriculum has been totally revamped. I'm sure there are echoes of things that I helped establish, but um, uh, it is a, it is. I know it's a different uh, curriculum, and there's an awful lot of details that have been added from other people. I mean, it's interesting going back and talking to people because there's all kinds of very specific exercises that people have developed to work on. Um, certain aspects of the game. Um, you know, I had a conversation with Will Hines last year and he has a, uh, an awful lot of, you know, very specific kinds of exercises to help people learn how to justify better or, uh, how to generate uh, unusual things or, you know, and, uh, uh, you know, there's a lot of exercises to do with framing something that, I think that I talked about, but I never used the term framing and it was never really, I never really had the full idea that it was like, oh, that's, um, that's a, a sort of an essential part of what you're doing, um, is you're, you're taking something strange that your scene partner might have done and helping shape it by framing it and help highlighting what it is that is, that was weird about it. I know I thought about that kind of in those terms, but but it was definitely it's been refined quite a bit. Now at the IRC, yeah, I've I've sort of gone back to square one and decided I want to create a curriculum, and it's still being revised and and worked on. But the idea is like I'm, it's basically a curriculum for people who already know how to improvise who want to learn the game. Um, and in theory, you could take it if you're if you are totally brand new to improv. Um, but in practice, you know, nobody really is doing that. It's as, this is, if there's so many programs in Chicago, uh, the first program you take is very unlikely to be at some, at a small, one of the smaller theaters. Most people start at, uh, second city or IO, I think. So when you look at your curriculum, um, whether it was the UCB in the early days or IRC now, how are you, how are you taking metrics to determine that it needs to be, changed or needs to be tweaked or are you even taking metrics and it's just more like oh i did this in class today and that definitely doesn't fit with what's going on i mean i think the ideal way to do it is something that is still needs if i were working at like a place like ecb i think we i would work harder to kind of create those kind of metrics to to do it but in other words that you would have some sort of objective way to watch people uh improvise at an early stage, uh, you know, in level one, say, and, and get a sense of what it is that they are doing well and what they're not doing well and see if the curriculum actually addresses those things by revisiting them at the end of level two and see if they've improved at all. I mean, that's the way you'd kind of want to do it. Um, I think it's really hard though, because the metrics for improv, I feel, are so subjective, you know, and different people see different things. I mean, I'm sure that as a teacher, there are things that I see that drive me bananas when students are doing them that other teachers don't notice and vice versa. I, I know for a fact that someone will come and study with me after they've been through another program and they'll be doing things that I really don't think are a problem at all. 
like for instance, asking a question that's just germane to the situation. Of course, a normal person would ask a question in that situation, or that question is a very useful one. Why not ask it? Um, and other people who've just been through like second city ADE program, uh, will be sitting in, in, you know, being very anxious watching it going, you're not supposed to ask questions. Why isn't he giving a note on the fact that they just asked a question or worse yet? Why is he encouraging them to ask questions when, which is one of the things I do is like, ask a question you, that sounded weird. Why don't you ask them what they meant? Uh, um, so yeah, I think we all look for different things and we all see different things. I, I, I've been doing a lot of recording lately of classes and uh, we just recorded a set of auditions. And so I can go back and watch the entire auditions that we just completed. And I find that really fascinating. I think I'm, I'm learning a lot of, of how I interpret things by going back and rewatching them. Um, because it's it's very hard to stay a hundred percent focused and to always be looking for the right things when you're watching your improv scene. Um, sometimes a scene will start to go awry, and it's really hard to know exactly why it's not working. You just know, well, these things aren't happening, but why aren't they happening? Um, so I don't know. I mean, I think in an ideal world, yes, you would come up with very specific metrics, but I don't even know exactly what those metrics are. Is it that they're and, and for me, they keep changing. So for instance, I'll give you an example. Like here's a, here's a sort of a guideline I feel strongly about. It's like, uh, when you're at the beginning of a scene, you need enough information about the circumstances so that you can stop worrying about it essentially. So that you think, Oh, I get what's going on here. I get it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're brothers and we're cleaning out dad's, uh, house after he's passed away. Okay, I understand what's happening right now. As soon as you know that, you can stop adding circumstances to make sense of the scene and then just play the scene. If you feel in that moment like I don't know what quite know what's going on, then it's your obligation to fill, help fill in those details. As soon as it starts to feel like, oh, I get it, I know what's going on, you can you can, you know, take your foot off the gas and stop adding so much if that makes sense. But that's a fairly subtle thing, you know, and it, it's, it's just kind of watching it. You know, there's all the time, I guess I'm giving notes where I've never really given that note before. Like I gave a note in class the other day, I was substituting in class at Second City and someone, uh, I was trying to get people to start a scene by how it feels, like be in this place, see how it feels um, let that tell you who these characters are to each other and where they're at. Like, don't even decide where you're at. And, and sometimes people will start a scene and they'll just decide a whole lot of stuff in their brain and they won't really tell the other person and they'll persevere with it. They'll tell them part of it, you know, they'll, they'll get across part of the idea in the first few lines, but they won't tell them everything. Um, and so they, they're sort of like grinding the scene along, like sort of grinding the gears in the scene because the other person isn't cooperating with the idea in their head that they haven't shared yet. So it's like they, they're, they, there's too much circumstances they've got in their head and, and they're not paying, they're not just using what's there. Um, Anyway, the, the way that that specific note of like you're getting way ahead of yourself in your in your brain planning what's happening here. I guess I've probably given that note in some form or not or another, but it felt different and new to me. Um, and it's very specific to that situation. Um, I, I kind of wish that that uh, improv had more specific metrics to it. Um, but I don't it, I don't see many op situations where it. It does. I think one of the sort of secret um, reasons why the UCB has done so well and succeeded so well is that they've really focused on one, uh, a very small set of ideas that they're trying to teach. And, uh, you know, they're not trying to teach everything about comedy or everything about improv. They're trying to teach this one very core philosophy. And a lot of people don't like that philosophy or whatever, um, but people 
who learn that philosophy have actually learned something. Like, you know, someone who's been through UCB can turn to you ideally and tell you, well, what did you learn? And they'll say, well, I learned these things or I learned how to do this. And I think oftentimes people will complete other unnamed improv programs and they'll get done at the end and you ask them, so what did you learn? And they'll go, I don't really know. Like I learned not to ask questions and I learned I shouldn't do scenes about roommates and I need to build a relationship. I'm not even sure what that means. Um, but they don't really, there's no process. And so, um, for me, I, I, I mostly want to get a process for it. I, I want to help students develop a process. So they really feel like I know how to start a scene. I know how to, I know what I'm be looking for. I know, for instance, like, do I have enough circumstances that I can relax? Then just relax, uh, and stop adding more circumstances, um, and concentrate on, you know, the behavior of the scene rather than on creating more circumstances. And in a lot of cases, the reverse is true. People haven't created enough circumstances, so they're they're sort of adrift in the scene. Do do your classes have a pretty? I just call it like the improv setup of like physically setup of like you come in, you do you talk a little bit, you do warm ups, then you go to exercises, then you build a scene work, or have you changed that up as well for yourself? I think the biggest thing I've experimented with lately. Well, maybe two things I've experimented with lately. One is um, showing, showing something, some piece of, usually it's a, it's a comedy sketch actually, rather than a piece of improv. And then talking, this is every, like every class in level one-on-one starts with this. We watch a sketch together. Um, I ask them questions about it. I try to get them to define aspects of the scene. And then I show them various things about how within this comedy sketch, they're doing things that, I want them to do as improvisers. Um, uh, so that's a new thing. And I don't think I would have shown comedy sketches 10 years ago to my students. Um, not in an improv class. So that's quite different. The other thing is homework is, is playing more with homework. I, I haven't gotten a great handle on it yet. I think there are things we can do, uh, to, uh, become better as homework, like drills that we can do for ourselves in the same way that like, if, I mean, the thing I always liken it to is like, if you were, if I was teaching you guitar and you came to the studio and I handed you guitar and I showed you a couple of chords and we practiced those chords for a half an hour, or, you know, you got to practice it for 10 hour or 10 minutes in the course of three hours (laughs) while watching other people practice those same chords by themselves. Uh, anyway, so you, you get, you got a chance to practice it. And then at the end of class, you put the guitar in the corner, you went home, you didn't do any guitar playing for a week. <laughs> and then you come back and you pick up the, you're going to be just as shitty at it. You know, if you're not going to be any better after a week of thinking about it, you might be slightly better because you, you did it and you slept afterwards, which is, you know, and sort of got deep into your brain. But you know, if you're going to learn to play guitar, you got to practice every day. Um, and that's true of anything, maybe not every single day, but really that, yeah, every day, like if you want to be a writer, you got to write every day. If you want to be a, you, you, you and you got to practice specific things. You can't just, you can't just, you know, do what a lot of people do where you just essentially, you know, sit down and with a pen and paper and vomit out words for two hours. Or, I mean, that would probably be a, some benefit, but it's not going to be much. And so, uh, uh, anyway, a lot of the times, um, uh, uh, people could get much better faster, I think, if they could develop some sort of routine to practice. The problem is practicing a guitar by yourself at home is obvious how to do that. Practicing improv by yourself at home is not so obvious. Um, you know, what, what do you do? How do you make that happen? Um, if you're lucky, like I was, I had a year or two early on where I got to do improv nearly every night. I was performing, rehearsing, coaching, taking classes, going to a jam nearly every night for about two or three years. And I made a lot of progress during that time. 
Um, but other people, yeah. But if you're just taking a class, I don't know how to get there. So anyway, so yeah, experimenting with different types of, of homework. Um, I think it begins with, I think it has to begin because it's so uncomfortable to do this. It has to begin with learning how to do improvised scenes by yourself, playing all the characters. That's a big one. And just learning how to do that so that you can learn how to do it. And then also, you know, I've come up with specific challenges, um, sometimes based on other people's exercises where you say this, the first line has to be this, and then you do, you respond to it kind of like this. And then you do, so it's like a justification exercise, for instance, this is one I think I stole from Will Hines, um, where if you're doing it with two people, one person is on stage by themselves doing an activity. Another person comes in and says to them, makes an accusation, an accusation like, uh, that's somewhat absurd, but not totally bizarre. Like, uh, Hey, did you, um, did you take the tires off my car and replace them with the tires from your car? Something that someone, no one would ever really do, but um, you know, something like that. And then the other person, they have to practice admitting it. Yeah, of course I did that. Yeah, yeah, I did that. And then coming up with a justification for it right away. And then the other person has to, uh, the first person after the justification comes out has to politely object to some aspect of it. And then the, finally the person doubles down on whatever the objection is. And and it's a very simple little four-step process that sort of teaches two or three things at once or practices two or three things at once. And if you could do that by yourself, um, spend time doing that by yourself, you would get much better at justifications. You would get much better at doubling down on things. You would, you would get build that instinct of admitting things whenever, when you're accused of things in improv scenes. You know, somebody accuses you of something, you just, yeah, I did that instead of the natural tendency, which is to defend yourself. Yeah. I, when we learn it, when I teach invocation, um, I do, I give them the homework of just pick an object and do the whole, you do the whole invocation yourself, right? Like keep right. practicing that. So some of them are really, I feel like some of them are obvious that we can give for homework, but like you said, some of them, it becomes... It's really hard to yeah. do it by yourself. It, it really, it really is. And and then some classes are really great. Like they get together kind of on their own or they're really involved or they're really going to watch shows and they're, you know, consuming every type of improv they can. Um, and then some literally, like you said, just show up week to week and they wonder why there's no growth and like have you have you even seen a show yet oh you haven't okay you know, like it's, um which can be frustrating as a player and a teacher uh do you, so in all the time that you've been doing this have you ever had to ask a student to leave your class well i usually don't start there if that makes sense like uh, several at several times I've had to take students aside and talk to them. I, here's, here's the, the thing. If it, you got to decide before you have this conversation, is your goal to help them become better and become uh, sort of incorporate themselves into this class or is your goal to get rid of them? If your goal is to get rid of them and both are possible goals, you might confront them in front of the, the whole class. Uh, and I sort of learned this by like, that's what I did once. And it was the last I saw of this student. Uh, you know, I don't, I don't think it was really mean or horrible to him, but they were, they were weirdly touchy feely with everyone, like everyone, not even just the women, um, which is, you know, often the problem. Um, but they were touchy feely with everybody. It's like every scene had to be about sex and every scene, they weren't like touching generals. I don't think so, but they were like just too intimate with people in every scene. And so this had happened, it probably happened more times than I would let happen nowadays, but it happened maybe a couple times, one class and another time, another class. And I just sort of gave him a note after one scene. It's like, so what's up with that? Why are you, why are you making every scene so intimate? Why are you touching people so much? 
I think you're making people uncomfortable. And he was, and he said something along like, well, this is what I'm working on right now. I'm trying to whatever. And I was sort of like, no, you don't, don't work on that in this class. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know what you, what version of, you know, you're just making people uncomfortable. And he never came back to class. Now there's several instances where I've done differently, where there was a guy in class years ago at IO. He's a real big guy. One of these guys who are like, I mean, he wasn't just tall, but he was like big. He was like 300 pounds and, and six foot four. And, you know, just a huge guy, like, you know, and, uh, the kind of guy who walked around with beer kegs, he was like an intern and he walked around with beer kegs on his shoulder at the theater. It's like, holy crap. Um, so he, he would do scenes and he would get, he would, he wouldn't always start this way, but he would get very aggressive. Sometimes he would use profanity. Sometimes he would, he would just, he would get angry. It seemed like he was getting angry in scenes a lot. And it was intimidating people, you know, people didn't want to do scenes with him. And there was one, except for this one, there was this one girl, tiny petite uh, girl who was not afraid of him at all and just would like turn him into it. Like she would, she would make him into a, an elephant and he would have to ride around, you know, it was, it was, fun, it was really fun to watch her play with him. But, but, but most people were kind of intimidated by him and didn't want to play with him. So I took him aside after class and I said, so what's, what's going on here? Do you, you, you know, I, I feel like you're, you're, you're doing this, you're becoming very aggressive and, and, and I don't understand what's happening. And he, outside of class, he was able to say to me, well, um, I just don't think anyone's committing to this scene work and it's frustrating me. And I'm like, oh, this is a, your reaction to how other people are, you're perceiving other people's faults or shortcomings. And so I sort of like, we talked about it for a while and it's like, you, you know, see, I think they're having trouble committing to the scene because they're intimidated and scared, you know, like you, this is making it worse basically. And, and people are, are, are don't want to do scene work with you and, he, and because of this. And he's like, wow, I've never, he, he didn't, hadn't really thought of it at all in those terms. And, and I remember, so this was like midway through level two or something, or maybe it was level four. I don't know. But anyway, he came back to me months later and he's like, thank you for that. Thank you so much for that. He, he really changed how he was behaving in class. And as a result, really changed how people were reacting to him. And so it kind of, it, it really helped him. And I've seen that a few times. So if you take someone aside outside of class, you don't confront them uh, in front of everyone. You can often get a lot further with finding out what's going on with them because they have some reason why they're doing it. It also is, um, you know, we do these classes called Scene Blast here in Chicago. It's actually something um, that got started in Phoenix at the Torch Theater. The thing, one of the things I like about that is you, so you do a scene and then the coach takes the people outside of the room and gives them notes away from the rest of the students. And I find people are way more receptive to notes and way less defensive about them when they're not getting those notes in front of the entire class. Um, now it's not like we're, we're dishing out really harsh notes and scene blasts, but I do think that people are, um, you know, it's just easier to take a note in private um, than it is to take it in front of everybody else. And and it puts people more – there's something about uh, a conversation between two or three people that is – it just is easier to take criticism in that situation and to listen to it. Um, so, yeah, I think that's a nice thing. So it's tricky – and I, I think that I would, I think that in a lot of cases I would try to act sooner, you know, maybe cause there's, there's all kinds of things I've learned over the years that I'm not as way, I'm way less sensitive than some people are to what's happening in class. And I think that's true of a lot of teachers who, you know, you kind of get a thick skin for certain kinds of thing, moves that people do. And it's like, oh yeah, yeah, I've seen that before. It doesn't, it, it may not be a good move, but it doesn't bother you in the same way. Um, uh, sometimes that's valid and sometimes it isn't. So I'm trying to, I'm trying to nip things in the bud a little sooner. I think people process it differently too. Like 
like, I don't know. I'd be interesting, interested to talk to Susan about this, but like improvisers from our generation from back in the nineties, um, you just put up with shit, you know, like he just put up with it and, and, and moved on. It's like, deal with it and move on motherfucker. Deal with it. Like this is what happened on stage or deal with it. Like, Oh, that teacher is really tough to be more like direct about it. Like for instance, sexism, you know, like, I mean, full out sexual harassment, no one should have to deal with that. And, but there's sort of, there's more subtle things that happen in classes all the time where, um, I think number one, I was less aware of it than I am these now, uh, things like, uh, I give you a real simple example. Like I was watching an audition and there's this guy who's kind of skeevy or kind of broy. Um, and I could say it's like, oh, he's being a little broy here. And he, they went out with, for a scene with this young woman and the young woman immediately turned him into her dad or her brother or something. And I turned to the other auditioner who was a woman and I was like, she did that so that he won't turn it into a romantic scene. Didn't she? And she said, yeah. And I was like, why have I never noticed that before? I'm sure that's happened hundreds of times in front of me where, uh, a, f- a female who's had enough of being the girlfriend in every fricking scene or being the girl that being asked out in every scene has developed some tools to protect herself. So I think, I guess what I'm saying is to wrap loop back around is like, I think back in the night earlier, we would have had this more kind of attitude of here's how you protect yourself. Here's how you deal with it. Here's how you counter it. When some douchey guy makes a stupid initiation and you, here's how you roll with it and make it, make it so it's not so icky to be a part of. Right. Um, and you kind of, and that's a valid thing to teach, but, but I think more and more, uh, people are just saying, well, why do we have to deal with that at all? And they're right. You know, we shouldn't have to learn a special set of defensive improv skills that guys don't even realize that are happening. Um, so, so yeah, it's a matter of like talking about those things head on a little bit more and, and, you know, you're, there's just no, there's a hundred ways to get that conversation wrong. Um, so you just kind of have to keep having the conversation and, 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 uh, try to be open about it. Um, and I think it's also something I've learned to do more as a teacher is, is not just take people aside who are, who are problematic, but to be sensitive to students who are having, who are something is wrong and they're not talking about it. You can tell like they're, they're feeling anxiety or, or being uncomfortable or something, taking them aside, uh, at break or after class and saying, Hey, what's going on? Tell me what's going on. Um, cause I need to hear from you what it is that's bothering you. Um, so it was like something like that happened in a class in New York a, a few years ago where, um, a, a woman in class was, I could tell something was bothering her about what was transpiring. And she, and so I talked to her outside and I said, so what's going on? And she said, you know, I'm just, well, she, she sort of was kind of blanketly upset about the kind of broy culture in the room. There weren't, there weren't a lot of women in the class. And I, and I said, can you give me an example of what something that's bothered that, that particularly bothered you? And she gave me, and she gave me an example of, of something that happened. And it was the kind of thing that, that I was like, yeah, I do. I do agree with you that that was uncalled for, but I didn't, I didn't view it through the lens of gender. Um, without getting too specific, it was just sort of like a, a, a guy correcting a, 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 a woman, uh, about how they were supposed to do the scene. And, uh, it wasn't, it was a very, it was a relatively small moment, but the way he corrected her, she felt, um, she wasn't the one being corrected. It was, she was watching this and she's like, you know what, if she, if that player was a woman, he wouldn't have corrected her that way. He would have, he would have been less dismissive or something. 
And I, and I was like, yeah, I guess you're right. I didn't. Um, so anyway, I just, I guess I need that feedback and I recognize I need that, that kind of feedback from, from students because people are going to have different sensibilities. Sometimes I'm going to feel they're wrong. I've had, I've had conversations with students, uh, occasionally and, and they've felt upset about something and I, and I don't feel they, I mean, they're, they're, they're okay to be, I guess, you know, entitled to be upset about it, but I don't think they're interpreting it correctly. Uh, but that's, you know, that's just cause we're different humans, human beings. And, and you can't tell them your experience is wrong, but you can say, well, I'm not, I'm not processing it the same way I hear you, but I, I don't, you know, there was a situation where another class where someone was, uh, we were working on names. We were working on naming people. And, uh, so there was, and, I, and this is only, uh, you know, you'll, you'll understand why it's relevant to find out the, the, um, ethnicity of the people involved. So, but everybody was white. It, it's important to, to note, I think, to understand this, this conversation. So we're, we're working on names and we're, I'm telling you, you uh, name someone the first time you address them and use that name several times through the scene and just see how it affects the scene. But definitely give them a name, a specific name. So we had uh, this older gentleman and uh, a young woman um, and they were they started a scene which seemed like it was in a high school. And the the gentleman uh, the guy spoke second and he called her, I think he named her Letitia or something very similar to that. So it was, it was a kind of name that sounds, uh, you know, it's typically you would, you would think is a, a, a black, uh, urban, uh, a name you would encounter at like a, a urban black high school. Um, now he didn't do, there wasn't, there wasn't anything that accompanied it that, that was like trying to sort of push any kind of stereotypes on her or any expectation that she's should, like she had already spoken in the scene, like to, that she should take on some colloquial dialect that sounds like a inner city black students or something. Um, it was simply that that was the name and he used the name a couple of times and that was it. There was the only, there was no, there was nothing else to it than that. Um, there was no, I, I don't know how to put it, but it was just using that name. And it wasn't, uh, I think it was important. It may not have been Letitia, but it wasn't some extreme, uh, names name that you, that you might use if you're trying to make fun of names like that. It wasn't that either. And, and to give you some context, um, the, uh, uh, well, I don't know if I should say more about it because then you could sort of, it'd be possible to figure out who these people were. <laughs> so I'm not going to say more except, except to note that there's, this is a person who has lived in and worked in, uh, all his life has, has worked in mixed communities. And so he has known a lot of people with the names like this. This is not some kind of like suburban douchebag who's never met a black person, uh, uh, kind of anyway. So there was another person in the class, the, the, the woman in the scene didn't, didn't bat an eye, didn't even occur to her. Anything un, untoward had happened, but another woman in the class, this is like the last straw. She, we watched, she, she at break, she was walking out, she was walking out of class and she came up to me and says, I'm going to go home. And this is the, I'm not coming back to this class. And I was like, okay. And I asked her about it. I think I emailed her about it. I can't remember if she told me in person or if she emailed me about it, but she described that scene to me and said, you know, I just can't, I, I just won't work with that person anymore. Or, or, and, and I was, and I was just baffled by it, you know? I mean, I get, I can see it, but I think sometimes there's a, there's a sensitivity that has gone so far that, um, any, uh, any mention of, of, of anything to do with race or gender triggers, that's the wrong word. I don't want to use that because it, it's, a uh, cause people use that, use that as a dismissive, like, Oh, you're being triggered. I, I, I do, I, I do believe that there's all kinds of 
things that are can be genuinely triggering and upsetting that I didn't recognize. And I, and I am totally on board with that. But I also think there's occasionally students who are, have worked themselves into such a sensitive space of saying, um, any mention of these things. And I really don't mean it, it, boy, I hate even talking about this because I think there's so many stories I've heard in the last few years that are just mind boggling that I can't understand why improv teachers allow this shit to happen of, of, you know, scenes like it seems almost universal, uh, that the, uh, African-American students in Chicago in improv classes have dealt with extremely uncomfortable initiations and, and, uh, microaggressions over and over again in class that are just like, I don't understand how that can be tolerated. Um, and certainly, uh, things about gender and so forth that are just intolerable, uh, that the way that students have had to put up with shit. But occasionally I get that. I, I, there is sometimes I think, uh, rare cases where people get upset about things that are not worth getting upset about. Sure. And, and I wonder also, um, you know, not in the most, I mean, there's, I'm not saying that's okay and stuff, but I also wonder sometimes because stopping a scene and having a conversation can be difficult, um, mm-hmm. to call someone out and be like, Hey, do you understand how this is offensive, et cetera, et cetera. Especially if you don't ever have the training that goes with that prior to becoming the teacher or have some sort of like training mentoring program where you can go to a mentor as a teacher and be like, I came across this. I think I fucked it up. I need to go back and address it. What do I do? Luckily when, I mean, I think it's, it's kind of nice that usually when somebody is doing something that is offensive on love on some level like that, they are also breaking uh, some sort of improv rule and you can start by making it about the improv rule. So for instance, of saying, um, I think I've gotten better about talking about some things like this, like saying, um, you, for instance, I, you know, that initiation you made, uh, you really want to make initiations that you're sure that your scene partner is going to eagerly want to jump into with you. And I think, you know, initiating a scene about race with a student who you don't necessarily know very well, because this is a level one class or whatever, uh, that's probably a bad idea. Uh, if you're white and that, and this, and that player is, is a person of color, that that's a bad idea to, uh, um, you know, and, and, and it feels very different than if, if they initiate the scene and want you to, to join along or whatever. Um, or another example might be something that I don't think people pick up on very often, or, or I think women pick up on much sooner than men is just the idea that every time they do a scene with a woman, they make the, uh, make the relationship a romantic one or, or, or one where they're trying they're trying to pursue a woman to make it a romantic relationship. And that can just be exhausting. I think after, after a while, whereas it's sort of like, well, that's part of life. And, you know, if you're an actor, you're going to do a lot of scenes about relationships. And so like, that's how I've always thought of it. And it's been interesting to figure out how I'm, uh, where I'm wrong (laughs) basically. And be like, oh yeah, that's a that's a pain in the ass. And I think it's also there's a sense of satire that I got accustomed to, or a style of satire where you know it's developed by a bunch of like how do I put this? Back in the '90s, you know, we're again we're back in the '90s, and we're at I/O, and almost everybody there is is white, and um, a significant majority of the performers are um, men, and we all we come from similar socioeconomic backgrounds, mostly middle class, uh, you know, mostly college educated, and we're coming at comedy with this sense of like, we're, we're good guys. 
we're, we're the good guys. We, we want good things to happen. We're for, we're for equality or whatever. Like, you know, there was this, this sort of progressive sense about the place and what we're trying to do. And so therefore, when we do a scene where we're kind of playing a, a sexist monster, it's kind of understood by everybody in the room that we are trying to make fun of sexist monsters and not to, uh, uh, you know, be a funny sexist monster, like a, like a, like a talk show DJ. Um, but, uh, but developing that sensitivity where it's mostly straight white men in the room, um, you, you don't, it's calibrated all wrong, if that makes sense. Like it just, and, and, and we're now we're moving into this, we, we have moved into this much different situation in Chicago where it's a much more diverse community. Um, I think than it was in the nineties, it could, it could be better. But the point being that a lot of people still have the same mentality that they had, uh, 20 years ago, some of them are teachers and, and they're, and they're, they don't realize that the way that they have their sort of sensibility of what is good satire and what isn't doesn't take into account how, how hurtful it can sometimes feel. Just to give you an example of, you know, I always used Archie Bunker as an example of like satirical monster, you know? Uh, and the, everybody in the audience understands he's, he's the asshole here and, 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 uh, we're, we're not encouraging people to be racist and, and, and sexist, you know, or that by creating that portrayal, they're not, you know, however, I went back and I listened to, I watched some Archie Bunker and I remember listening to a segment of Archie Bunker where he was, he was talking about, um, somebody, uh, a character who wasn't in the, who in that, in that episode who was presumed to be homosexual or Archie was presuming to him to be art homosexual. And he was just saying things that are just like, you know what? I get it. I get that it's being satirical here and you're, you're presenting a point of view that, that you're undermining, but I don't want to hear this. I really don't want to hear, I don't even want to hear this gross of a point of view in a satirical context. Um, cause it's, it's, I'm not gay, but it, it's hurting my feelings. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's hurting me emotionally to listen to this. And so, um, I think there's a lot of things that we maybe do as comedians that, uh, sort of hit people wrong or, and we need to, and I don't want that. I don't want, I don't want to do something on stage that, that makes some people in the audience uh, feel guarded or, uh, offended or hurt. Um, I mean, I don't know some things I don't mind offending people about, but, but, uh, if it's about, you know, their race or gender or sexuality or something like that, um, I just, you know, I don't want, I want everybody to be able to laugh at the things we do, not just straight white men. What advice do you have to people who are who are new to it or who are jumping into it for the first time for teaching? Well, I think I think to the first thing I would say is talk a lot less than you think you should. <laughs> um, try to be as efficient as possible with notes, um, and don't only give notes on what you're working on. So, so like if you have an exercise that you're doing, you want to be clear in your head why you're doing that exercise and what kind of notes you want to give on that. And don't get sidetracked by all the other things that could happen. Uh, you know, I think there's a lot of classes that I've endured and probably some, a lot of classes I taught where I just, people would do scenes and then I would give them unload on them, give them every note that I could think of about how to make this better. And it's like, no, we're working on, what are we working on right now? We're working on this thing with the environment, uh, some aspect of the, of creating environment. So we should, I should keep my notes. 95% of my notes should be about that unless something really terrible happens that I have to address. Um, so yeah, keep focused on your notes, know why you're doing an exercise. Um, I'd say have, you know, over prepare, make sure you have 
at least 50% more exercises than you need. Um, and, uh, I don't know. I think listen to your students a lot and sort of find out what they're, how they're absorbing the material and how they're feeling about what's going on in class. Do you just do that with a simple, um, how are you feeling right now? Or what is something you took away from this exercise? Or are you using other tactics to get the students to share that information? I probably am a little too Socratic at times with my students, you know, where I'd be like, I'll be like, so what did you notice in that scene? And then what is, you know, and trying to get them to tell me the answer that I want them to, to, to hear. Um, so I, I think that's a good way to do it, but I think I probably rely on that too hard. Um, I think it's also important to let students know, like when you're analyzing a scene and breaking it down, you might be mentioning things that are not actually a problem, but you want, like for me, there's a lot of things I want them to be able to answer about a scene and it's not good or bad. It's just, I want like, for instance, you know, was, what was the game of that scene? And sometimes people will feel like they have to have an answer for that when sometimes the answer is there wasn't one. And, and part of the reason why I'm asking the question is because I want them to be able to say to me, I don't know what the game was in that scene, or I don't think there was a game in that scene. And for me to go, I think you're right. <laughs> you know, it's really important to be able to know there was no game in that scene. Um, Instead of instead of going, well, the game was we were plumbers and there was a toilet that needed to be unclogged. And I was the older plumber, I guess. You know, it's like, that's not a game. That's not a game. You're just telling me what happened in the scene. Anyway, um, I don't know if that answered your question. It does. It does. Um, uh, just uh, really quickly. uh to circle back. So right now, um, do you, are you the only teacher then right now of the IRC? Pretty, pretty much. I have some regular folks who do the scene blast with me, but the regular classes are just me at this point. Um, I mean, I'd love to build it to a point where I have multiple teachers, but I, uh, I might be, a, uh, might be some time for that. I mean, it's, it, it we're, Chicago is a very saturated market to be blunt. There are tons of, it's not only are the big three schools, but there are half a dozen other programs that people are trying to grow at the same time. And it's just, um, it's very competitive. So the idea that I would have this big, huge thing going on here is, 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 uh, probably several years away, several years of hard work away at this point. Do you think that when you get ready for that, you'll have a, a pretty like solid train the trainer or train the teacher program by that time? Um, or do you, is that something that you would want in place, I guess also? Hmm. I'm not sure. I mean, I definitely would want, if I was going to hire teachers, I'd want to have some sort of training thing going with them and have a very specific curriculum and, and have them ideally shadow me, uh, to teach, watch me teach those exercises and all that kind of stuff. But, um, so yeah, I, I mean, I don't right now where the IRC is at, one of the things we're trying to grapple with the people who are helping me with things here is, is kind of, you know, what, what the final, you know, what are we exactly building? Are we building a training program or are we building a media company? Are we building a theater company? Those are all possibilities. And, and so, you know, things may pivot and change over time. And, and, uh, you know, if you talk to me three years from now, teaching may not be the core thing that we do, uh, it, or, or it might be the core thing that I do is teach, but I'm teaching traveling that it's like kind of the, the travel model of, of spending, you know, two weeks a year in New York and two weeks a year in LA and, you know, 10 other weekends a year in other places. Where can people find you these days? Uh, best ways to go to the improv resource center. Um, you can email me at Kevin at improv center.com and you can um, find me on Twitter at IRC Mullaney. Uh, if people are listening to this and they want to be coached by me, one of the things that I am trying to expand, uh, is, 
uh, coaching to different places uh, outside of Chicago. Because like I was saying, it's very, very competitive in Chicago. There's a ton of programs, uh, lots and lots of options for students. But I think one thing that's that I've done in the past I've really liked and that I think is a really good option for people outside of Chicago is to get coached by uh, somebody like me via Skype, via Skype. And I'm, we're one of the things with building this sort of, uh, trove of equipment, uh, is that I can, uh, it makes Skype coaching much easier and, and, uh, fruitful, I think. So yeah, Skype coaching, contact me for that. <laughs>